welcome to episode number 13 of the Piracy Impact Podcast. I'm Michael Goff. And I'm Jason Swan. Jason, this is a different one. You are now in the hot seat. I was wondering if you're going to cut me out of the intro there. I, I almost did, <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll do a little of our banter because I know the fans love that. Of course but, they do. Um, then we'll switch pretty quickly into, you know, talking about you and, and you know, why we started the podcast and things like that and how you got your start. You know, the usual questions, but um, I... I think from the feedback we've gotten, people want to hear a little bit more about your background and, and what you bring to the table. Yeah, we're trying to mix it up so we get a little bit of everything. Yeah, I think so. So, so let's get right into it. You know, don't leave anybody hanging. Um, so, <laughs> so beaded breath out there. <laughs> talk to me about how you got here. Not necessarily Revulinix, but into the world of compliance. Because I know you started in sales. Yes, yes, been in sales for twenty plus years. And I think like a lot of folks that are in compliance today, they, they have different backgrounds. I mean, John from uh, M&M that we just launched the other day has a biology major, then got into the law, then finds himself in IP. So I've been a salesperson my entire career, uh, like I said. And, you know, at one point I was running Global Insight Sales for a um, software company here in Boston. And I had a big footprint. There was 120 sales reps on the team, a lot of different language skills, and you're covering the entire globe. So when I was introduced to this non-compliant space uh, from the company and they were looking for a home for the telemetry that was being collected at that organization, I became a very natural place to introduce it because we could cover every corner of the world. We had the language skills. We were a telesales organization. So then we went on this little uh, discovery journey of, you know, where's the data coming from? How is compliance different from sales? Um, you know, and did the, you have to be talked into that? Like, you know, you're, you're in sales and now they're saying, hey, we want you to focus on compliance. We're going to give you basically these leads, right? The data that you get is leads. You're going to act on them. How, how hard did you have to I be I never have to be talked into taking on new leads. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, the sales organization, I mean, inside sales, the conversion rates on, as you know, in the marketing world, on marketing qualified leads could be 2 to 5%. Yep. And when I heard that they had actionable data against current customers and prospects where, you know, really the stick would change hands. The stick would be in the hands of the salesperson calling, stick's probably the wrong terminology, but, you know, the cloud is different, the the positioning is different. Right. You know, we looked at it as a sales team and said, this sounds like a good idea. You know that they already like the product. Right? Of course. They're, they're users. They're users. Right? Yeah. They, they just haven't paid yet. But. Yeah, and we made the assumption that when approached amicably, cooler heads would prevail. Folks would want to make sure that they were compliant. There's all sorts of downstream issues with using pirated software. So we felt like this would be a slam dunk. Yeah. And we were right. Yeah. And what was sort of the response at that company in terms of how you grew that program? And, you yeah, know, I mean, of course, there was a lot of questions. You know, when you first get access to the gravity of the situation and how much data actually has been collected and where in the world it is and what's the percentage of customers versus prospects and then the legality, this is pre-GDPR. Yep. So the legality of, you know, what are you collecting? What can you say? What can you exchange? You know, there's a fair amount of due diligence involved to say, you know, from a corporate culture point of view, who do we want to be? And then from an actual engagement methodology, when you start to put the sales process together, which is different from your inside sales, sure. sales process, you start to look at 
what can be exchanged, how would you like to exchange it, what ask are you going to put out there to the infringer, you know, and kind of work it through that process to figure out the swiftest way to handle it, the most amicable way to, to handle it. But legal really had a strong, um, you know, fingerprint on what was happening early. And then as we started to, you know, kind of get going, and we had a lot of people actually in weekly meetings, on the leads, talking about, you know, each and every conversation, what was being objection handled. So the company as a whole put a lot of focus on making sure we did it right. But then once we proved that we could be repeatable, our ability to then spread that globally was swift and the results were fantastic. Nice. And fair to say you're taking a mostly inside sales approach to those leads then. Fast yes. forward to six years ago, you joined Revulitics, you're heading up the revenue recovery services arm. Was it sort of at that point where you got more involved with taking, you know, sort of a mixed approach to things, sometimes inside sales, sometimes legal? Yep. You know, I had a little bit of exposure to auditing and legal, you know, when I got started. You know, one of the interesting things, and probably for me the most interesting, was when I first realized that we were going to go down this, you know, non-compliance journey, I just simply went on LinkedIn and started searching for anybody with a compliance title, which if you do that exercise, a significant amount of people kind of pop up in the radar. So I started looking at like-minded software companies from size, from scope, you know, backgrounds. Yep. And, I mean, not a significant amount of research here, but a couple of hours just looking through, putting a list together. I reached out to probably a dozen people immediately, and I was blown away at how receptive everybody was. And this thought process of, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, they wanted everybody in the industry to be doing the same thing so the infringers wouldn't have that out clause of, I'm going to switch from your software to another right. software because, you know, you're the individuals that are now going to chase me and threaten me, and which just wasn't really true, but it was a narrative then. Yeah, definitely one of the myths, right? Yep. You know, is that, oh, you know, <clears throat> if you go after certainly customers, and, and you know, we've seen, you yeah, a lot of our customers, half the leads that get are from existing customers, right? Yep. It's, it happens. So as I started to talk to some of those folks, you know, I had the pleasure of talking to Christina Crowley at Oracle, which is running a really different business at Oracle back then than, than we were at the company I was represented to and a lot of the SCG clients. But she gave me this whole picture of, you know, how a global organization like Oracle had built out their license management strategy. So I started to get a feel for, you know, I talked to the folks at HP and Mentor Graphic and all these different companies where the people running the programs were just fantastic to me. And I suppose to everybody in the industry. So when I came to SCG, certainly I had the background in sales, but there has to be escalation. There has to be other paths. And so we built it out accordingly. That's interesting. So, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, what that reaction is, what that response is to, you know, sort of taking this approach. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like making that decision to go after existing customers and how that can vary from company to company that you've worked with here at Revulinex. Yeah, the basic premise, Michael, has always been you can't compete with free. So how do you as a software vendor want to handle that objection? We can ignore it, which a lot of people have done for, for many, many years. You know, without a telemetry strategy, understanding the gravity of it and the revenue loss associated with it is also a form of putting your head in the sand if you're not actually collecting and trying to establish, you know, what that marketplace really looks like. 
I think once you make the decision that you're going to engage, most people are surprised if they do have the right telemetry solution. They're surprised how many current customers are actually in this infringing database. Because most people believe it's going to be, you know, the brick countries and, you know, underdeveloped countries and prospects only, only to find out that at least half and sometimes more than half are current customers. But if you come in with the right tone, and the tone in the corporate culture, you really can't stress them enough because every software you know, or a vendor and organization you know, has their own you know, culture and feelings towards you know, how they engage customers and prospects. And if you can just marry you know, the, the talk track and the script to how they really want to handle it in approach from an executive level. So one of the things I learned very early on is a bottom-up approach is very challenging. And it's challenging because it puts salespeople, resellers, uh, you know, distribution partners in a very difficult position. I mean, the strength of a reseller network is the localization. Yep. So those organizations are on the ground, running user groups, doing training, maintenance, tech support. The last thing they want to do is engage in a potential situation that can escalate. So if you come in with any third party, whether it's internal or external, to a current customer from the top down and ask for kind of an ethical investigation on, we have some information, we want you to look into it, it protects those people on the ground. They can very swiftly just say, this is a corporate initiative. But if your tone is right, and you come in and just say, we have reason to believe that this thing's happening in your organization that I'm sure you don't condone, I'm sure you would want us to tell us if we had the information, which we do, it never really escalates. You share the intel, they investigate, you get back on the phone, you talk through a remedy, you settle it, everybody moves on. And that's been sort of a sea change, I think, in the way that tone has evolved over time, right? Like in the past, it was definitely much more, you come in hard, you come with a stick, now it's really coming in with a carrot, right? Like you want to build long-term customer value, you know, even where you're finding, you know, pure pirated use at a net new customer, you want that relationship to be good long-term. You know, if you come in hard and heavy looking just to be punitive. Yeah, well, I think the auditing industry or the auditing uh, service, when you're coming in with a script that you're asking somebody to go run on their network, it feels a little more like a fishing expedition yep. than what I'm describing here of it's, a, it's more of a limited scope of what's happening there's a couple of bad apples yep. or, or 50. Uh, but there's something going on here that's isolated yep. that you want to just expose the executive team to. And again, assuming that they don't know what's happening, a, a remedy that's pretty swift is going to happen. If you're now you know, kind of crawling the network and asking them to do a lot of extra work that, oh, that they believe is extra work, even though it's in the EULA. But if you ask them to do the extra work and, and they believe you're just trying to manufacture sales, it automatically just sets the tone differently. Now there's ways around that and organizations and software vendors have done a great job of having that knowledge transfer be a part of that process and not just a one-way ask. Yeah, and it's very different now. You have some of that data. So from the vendor perspective, you're, you're not going out on fishing expeditions. You're not using you know profile data or, you know, gut feeling of a sales rep that thinks somebody should be buying more. So you can be much more um, disciplined in who you're going to actually audit if it even gets to that level, right? It's a very targeted approach. You're using data analytics 
to, to create accounts and actionable leads that you would then go engage factually knowing that bad behavior is happening, which is very different from any sort of fishing expedition. Yeah. So as things have evolved over time since you've started your compliance journey, what's sort of been the most interesting thing? Is this an easier argument to make, an easier sell to make these days? You know, people get what we're doing and the approach to compliance, or is there still some hesitation? You know, the only hesitation that still exists is just a fear of how your customers are going to react. So everybody knows there's piracy in their base. Everybody we talk to knows that they should be taking some action to either engage or engage and monetize. So the education isn't necessarily there on that front. You know, GDPR going back a year and a half ago, you know, really solidified what you can sure. track and took that objection off the table yep. because, you know, you and I were running around before GDPR and that was the first three phone calls was trying to convince people that can we do this? Can we do it? It's legal to track yep. and this is what we can track and this is why we're tracking it. Where now it's already been outlined for us. Everybody else is doing it. All the EULAs um, are referencing it and it comes off the table pretty, pretty fast. But the customers, you know, depending on how swiftly you believe that your customer can switch from your technology to a competitive technology, still remains the one objection we need to get over to say, these clients don't want this behavior happening in their in their install base, yeah. right, with, it, with, their, with their employees. Yep, and it's been interesting. As we've been doing this podcast, we had a good mix of vendors, good mix of partners, um, just hearing some of those individual journeys about how they got from wrapping their heads around what this process would look like to really seeing piracy as an opportunity. You know, what's been the most surprising thing or interesting thing to you, you know, as we've been talking to these folks and uh, as you've seen the space evolve? I mean, the most surprising thing is how quickly you go from, we're not really sure how much revenue can be driven from this program to all of a sudden we're driving a significant amount of revenue and they're looking at you know, growth numbers year over year, you know, a year out, two years out that blow their mind to, you know, we only want to go down this path amicably. We never want to get lawyers involved to all of a sudden they're, you know, suing selective people globally because you get emotional sometimes about an install based customer that you have factual evidence is stealing. They might even be promoting on their website the fact that they know how to use your software and are promoting licenses they don't have, and you get emotional about that, and all the letters and back and forth that you try to get them to amicably talk doesn't work, and then what do you do? You end up escalating, and then all of a sudden, two, three years down the road, you've got a full-fledged, non-compliant program that has a lot of different facets of how to engage and to monetize, where maybe you never thought you were gonna get there. So I have some good laughs sometimes at our you know yearly, you know, reviews with folks to say, do you remember where you were two years ago when we had yep. this conversation? But it's always a good conversation because they feel like they're doing the right thing. They are monetizing it, but it's not really a revenue generation business at its core. It's really a, let's get the pirated licenses off the street. And if we can monetize that, that's great because we're in the selling software business. But it never starts out as like a sales organization that all we want to do is go out and drive revenue. At its core, we really want to clean everything up. Yep. Yeah, you know, so we talked a little bit about you know the role of data 
you know, impact and compliance and, you know, how GDPR has made things a little bit easier because there's that exception that allows for, you know, fraud prevention and collecting data like that. Um, what are you, what else are you seeing with respect to, you know, the growth of data, the importance of data? Um, it seems like everybody is collecting all sorts of data. Is there sort of a growing acceptance and normalization of, yeah, our, our usage data is there and, we expect that, you know, not only are you collecting it, but we actually hope that you're going to share it with us. And obviously, in the case of infringement, you are sharing that with them. You know, how much are you seeing uh, vendors sharing usage data, you know, either for other purposes or more interestingly, maybe for shelfwares so to point out to the fact, hey, you know what? We know you bought this much. You're only using this little bit of it. You know, let's have that conversation. Sort of getting ahead of things. Yeah, you know, when I first started and got exposed you know, to the data and to the, the program in general in the in non-compliance space, you know, the data was significant because when you talk to account managers that own these relationships, you needed to internally sell first and say, we have facts that your customer, that's a customer of our collective company, is stealing software and here's how many machines and here's the gravity of the situation. And once you kind of sold that sales rep or maybe the regional director and got approval to then go, you know, out to the actual customer, that was kind of the first hurdle. The second hurdle would be the salesperson or the non-compliant person that's actually going to engage the infringer. You need to you need that individual to have no doubt in their mind that they're in the right. Yep. Because more often than not, there's going to be pushback on lots of different channels of pushback. And as, as long as you're confident in what the data says is happening, you can still move forward. If you have any doubt that anything is a false positive or that this situation isn't what it appears to be, you can get rattled a little bit. And the last thing you want is to be confronting a customer or even a high-level prospect with false information. Sure. So the data that we've been associated with for so many years eliminates that objection. So once you know you have the right core information, all these other things are possible, knowing that you're engaging from a position of strength. Yeah. So on that note, what's yes. some of the best excuses you've heard from infringers um, in the face of this forensic evidence of infringement? Well, one of, the, one of the many things we've learned over time, too, is don't give too much information too early. Okay. Because when you do this remotely, which most of us do, it's best to slow drip information and see how the infringer reacts to the information. If you give too much too early, like anybody in life, they can start to you know, formulate a, a strategy off the information you've given, create a bunch of excuses. If you slow drip the information and just give a little bit and ask them to go investigate and come back, then you can just pivot off that information. I'll give you a prime example. And this is not a funny story, but it's just you know reality sure. that you know, we give some information and we've got this long history of infringement over two years and we get this CIO on the phone and he's done this, you know, two-day investigation. He comes back to us and he says, I know what happened. I had six or seven interns in <laughs> over the summer and they brought their own laptops and they were doing side projects and working for us and, you know, non-paid internships. So, you know, on our network and I said, okay, what were the months that they were on board? And, you know, emphatically, you know, June 24th to August 24th. And 
I said, well, that's funny because the data I'm seeing has actually been for 24 straight months. <laughs> so unless those interns have been on the network, you know, over Christmas. and <laughs> But it's like one of those scenarios where this individual formulated a strategy yeah. based on how they thought they were going to confront just the simple information I'd already given them, only to really bury a deeper hole. And again, I would imagine it's fairly rare that you're talking to someone at the C level that's endorsing unlicensed use. It is rare, but it happens. I mean, sure. when you're talking the volume we're talking about, yep. smaller companies, even if five percent of the folks came yep. back with a silly story, it's a now a large number. Right. So, you've been at this for about six years here at Revulitics. A few years before that, at your other company, do you have one best piece of advice that you could share when it comes to compliance? I would say get started early. Yep. Start collecting data immediately. Because you can solve a lot of um, challenges or overcome some challenges and objections internally once you know what's happening. I talked to this prospect the other day about this and we were chatting about you know, their install base and you know, a very large percentage of revenue comes from uh, very few customers. And we're talking about kind of the cascading model that they have of, you know, what the mid-sized company and the SMB market for them and prospects and whatnot. And it was a very hearty conversation of, you know, what to do in the event you collect data and all these different customers. And I just looked across the table and said, why don't we just get the data and then we can make all these decisions once we have it. Sure. Because I can anecdotally tell you historically where the data comes from and all the other customers I've worked with and relationships that I have I said but you may be different so why don't we start collecting immediately and you don't have to engage we can sit on the data six months 12 months two years if you'd like most likely you won't because you're going to see information of things that you want to go engage with but isn't it great to then have that decision to be yours yeah after you know what's happening it's a much more informed decision and when you see where it's coming from you see it's it's real it's from companies that should be paying, maybe already are paying, yep. don't know that they have pirated software or are overusing. Uh, it's a very different decision tree. You can always walk away. You can always not engage. But you can't engage unless you know. Fair enough. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. To put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> well, I, I'm certainly grateful that we don't need to label this with an explicit language warning. Okay. Um, You're the but, marketing guy. Yeah, you know. But... Uh, Thank you very much, Jason. This has been a lot of fun. This and is it? I could talk all day. I know you could. <laughs> all right. You want to give the people what they need. All right. Fair enough. All right. So this has been episode number 13 of the Piracy Impact Podcast. From Baker's Rugby Dozen. Lights. Now it's the Baker's <laughs> Dozen. 13. Absolutely. Lucky 13. With your host, Jason Swan, and me, Michael Goff. Special thanks to our very special guest, Jason Swan, for joining us. And thank you for listening. We appreciate you subscribing to and rating this podcast wherever you listen. Adding a rating and review helps other software license compliance professionals find our podcast. You can continue the conversation on social media. Please follow us on Twitter at Revulytics and share your comments and questions with hashtag PiracyImpact. You can also learn more about Revulytics and how we've supported customers' compliance programs generate more than $2.4 billion in new license revenue since 2010 at www.revulytics.com. <laughs>